So good morning, everybody. Thanks, Monique, for inviting. So the, the, the question, thank you for organizing. So the, the, the question really is, what is the class about? I don't know. So I, I said that I, I've been teaching for about, I don't know, 16, 17 years. I teach a class every week, which is basically the perasha based on sod. So if we look at every level of Torah, we see Torah is, we have four levels of Torah that we, we look at. We have, she's coming? Oh, okay. We have Peshat, the simple. We have, we have uh, Terush. We have uh, the different, different levels, the Remez. And then we have also the Sod. So Sod means the secret. So the question is, what does Sod relate to? Sod relates to Kabbalah. Where does Kabbalah begin? So the, the problem is we have a book called the Zohar, and the Zohar is the basis of what we have of Kabbalah, but the Zohar doesn't appear until the 13th century. So the question is, was it written in the 13th century, or was it really written by Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai in the 2nd century of the Common Era? So we hold that it was written by Shimon Bar Yochai, and it was hidden away. One of the reasons I could say that that's most likely what it is, and this is only edited in the 13th century for publication, is because we have so many rabbis prior to the 13th century who are referring to things that would be in the Zohar without a book of Zohar in front of them. For example... I'm sorry, the Zohar and the Kabbalah, the Zohar is pre-Kabbalah? So, so, Kabbalah, so, so, so let's look at what the word Kabbalah means. Kabbalah means to receive. The Kabbalah is basically an aspect of the oral Torah. So we have the written Torah that was given to us on Mount Sinai. And along with the written Torah, we have an oral Torah. So for example, in the Torah, it says, it says that you're going to, you should put these signs between your eyes. That's all the Torah says. So if you're going to tell me, and the words should be between your eyes, what does it mean? So there's a guy who wrote a book that he tried to follow all the laws of the Torah, from the biblical part. So what is he going to do? He's going to take uh, the chapter of the Torah, the Shema, and he's going to tape it in between his eyes. Because what does it mean to have it? It's, it has to be literal. So there's, there's no way to understand the Torah literally. So there has to be an explanation given to every word of the Torah. So the, the explanation given to every word of the Torah is the oral Torah. Torah Shabal Peh. So watch. So Torah Shabal Peh, where you're looking at Torah Shabal Peh, what do you consider Torah Shabal Peh? Is there a book relating Torah Shabal Peh? So the Gemara, you're going to say, is Torah Shabal Peh. When does the Gemara appear? The Gemara doesn't appear until the 5th century of the Common Era. That means the Gemara is only 1,500 years old. The Mishnah which was put together between the year 100 and 200, is about 1,900 years old. That's the oral Torah. Well, what about between the 1,500 years before that and that date? How did you know what Tefillin looked like? How did you know? And it says in the Torah, an eye for an eye. Did we ever hold an eye for an eye? Did we ever hold a hand for a hand in Judaism? Did we ever hold it? But you're telling, if you say to me that the oral Torah is not until the Gemara, it's not possible. So we have that when Moshe was on Har Sinai, God gave him all the laws of the Torah, obviously the written Torah. And then he gives Moshe also the oral Torah, which is the explanation behind each of 
the, the words in the Torah, each of the letters in the Torah. For example, there's a story. Who, who we say is the father of Kabbalah? If we say Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai, who's the author of the Zohar, who's the teacher of Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai? Is Rabbi Akiva. Rabbi Akiva is the teacher of Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai. There's a story that when Moshe Rabbeinu was in heaven. Oh, I'm sorry. Can we um, tape you? Taped. You taping? Yeah. So, so, <laughs> so there's a story that when Moshe Rabbeinu was in Shemaim, when he was in heaven, and he was writing the Torah, he didn't understand why on the top of the letters there are certain crowns. And he said to Hashem, why does this letter have a crown, and this doesn't, and this has three crowns? Why the crowns? So the Midrash says that Hashem took him forward into time, and he put him in the back of a classroom of Rabbi Akiva. And Rabbi Akiva is explaining to his students who are asking the question, why does this letter have a certain number of crowns on it? What do each of the crowns mean? And Rabbi Akiva is explaining the reason this word has this letter, which has these crowns, is such and such and such and such. And Moshe Rabbeinu is standing there and he says, it's unbelievable. Why are you giving the Torah through me? You should give the Torah through him. I don't even know this. God says, relax. And Moshe becomes somewhat depressed. And all of a sudden, one of the students asks Rabbi Akiva, Rabbi, how do you know this? And Rabbi Akiva says, Torah Moshe Messinai. This is the Torah that Moshe gave us on Sinai. Hashem says, don't worry, you don't understand everything. And all of this, they're going to hold from you. So every one of the sodot, the secrets of the Torah, was already given to Moshe on Har Sinai. Moshe gave those secrets over to Aharon, his brother, Aharon's children, and to Yoshua. And from there, it went to the elders, and from there to B'nai Israel. So all these aspects of the oral Torah were given at Har Sinai. That's what we hold. What happened and the reason we had to write the oral Torah down was that with the destruction of the temple and with the disbursement, the second disbursement. So remember, you have to look at history and, and see what's happening. That you have the, the B'nai Israel leave, leave Egypt the year 2448. We come into... Israel, the year 2488 of the Jewish years. Now what happens is we have a Mishkan and we don't have a king for another 400 years. Then we have a king and we build a Bet HaMikdash under Shlomo and that lasts for about 400 years. And then that Bet HaMikdash is destroyed. So almost a thousand years after we got the Torah, what happens? We get thrown out of the country and we end up in Babel, in Babylonia. When we're in Babylonia, so when we're in Babel, when we're in Babylonia, there's definitely a disconnect because you're you're away. No, the Talmud Babli is not actually for many many years later. Now the reality is that most of our parents, grandparents, whatever, our ancestors, left. When Nebuchadnezzar threw them out in 570 before the Common Era, that's, three, that's 2,500 years ago, we went to Babel, we never came back. We never went back to Eretz Israel. Most of the Syrians never went back. We went to Babel, oh, and when we went to Babel, we went to other cities like Aleppo, which was established back then, and never came back. What happens is... A century later, we have 
we have Ezra HaSofer, and they start to bring them back, and you have this, the, the second, we're going to call it the second Yishuv, we're going to call it the second time they come back, and then they build the Bet HaMikdash again. During the second temple era, the majority of Jews did not live in Israel. Since the year 570 before the common era, the majority of Jews lived in Galut. Within the next 10 or 20 or 30 years, most likely, we'll have something that we haven't had in 2,500 years. The majority of Jews will be living in Eretz Israel. And when that happens, a lot of laws change. Because once the majority of Jews are in Eretz Israel, things change in how laws are done. Now, what we had to do is we had to take this oral law, this oral description, this oral explanation, and we had to hand it down generation to generation. While you're living in Eretz Israel, it's very easy because you're all living together, you're all learning things together, you're all going from person to person, and you even come up with you come up with ways to remember things that are given over, so everyone knows. Now what happens is with the destruction of the second temple, now you have those Jews who were in Eretz Israel, they're gone. They all get sent to Rome. There were so many Jews that became slaves in Rome that you that the the, the the you know in Rome your wealth at that time was based on how many slaves you owned. Because so many Jews entered the slave market, the market crashed and the value of a slave went down so much because there were a million Jews to sell. Try to conceptualize what that means. You know, someone was telling me, one of the Chazan yesterday was telling me in Shul, he was so depressed, you know, we lost seven guys the night before, eight guys the night before. It's, he didn't want to say Halil. I said, just think for a second what life was for your grandfather or great-grandfather. Compare that life to ours. Compare life to the destruction of the temple in the second temple. What was it life in the second temple? They were sold as slaves, every Jew. Now you started forgetting Torah. How are you going to keep it? You're not even in your country. You're not connected. There's nothing there. There's no Ben HaMikdash. So what happens is they had to start writing things down. So now we have the Gemara, which is basically where we see the oral law. But from the Gemara, it goes forward, forward, forward till today. We're still interpreting the Gemara. At the same time, there's a level of Sod, which is, we're calling it secret. Now, just to explain something, I was talking to Rabbi Farhi the other day. And, in, and there's, there's a concept of a number of Mikubalim got together, a number of Kabbalists got together, and they wanted to explain the Torah on the highest level of Sod, of secret. Like we said, there's different Pirash, Tirush, Remes, and Sod. So they wanted to explain the Torah on Sod. So they wrote this big book explaining every single word on Sod. And they saw the book was too big. So they got together and they edited the book. And they saw the book was still too big. And they edited it a third time, and they looked at it, and it was perfect. Except it was exactly what Rashi writes. <laughs> what does Rashi's that mean? Chef, no. that, so, so if you really understand Rashi, he's not Peshat. If you understand the Gemara, it's not Peshat. What you have to do is peel away the layers until you get to a unifying single principle, which is always sought. Sod is this unifying single principle that answers all the questions. You could bring up when you're studying a perasha, 25 or 30 questions. And from those 25 or 30 questions, you can answer the 25 or 30 questions on their own. But if you're looking at it in Sod, there's going to be one answer that's going to cover every single question. Can you give us an example? Yeah. Yes. So I'm going to give you the most wild example that I can give you. 
What happened? Tell me what happened at the Akedah. <laughs> Tell me what happened at the Akedah. At the Akedah, it seems that an angel of Hashem came to Abraham and told him, stop. Mm-hmm. And what do you think Abraham did? You think he stopped. Was, Yaak, was, was Yitzchak killed at the Akedah? No, you think not. not. <laughs> the problem is, if you look at it from Sod, mm-hmm. is no question he killed him. And he came back to life. And if you want that, you just there's an hour podcast you can listen to the class and see. Basically, you'll see in this class 25 questions on what we read and how we understand it. And the only way to understand it is to say he really killed him. Now, why don't we say he really killed him? Because you don't want to tell a little kid in school. I don't know. Or you don't want to deal with resurrection of the dead when you started dealing with the friendly religion of Christianity. So if you, if you see it, you could see from a Kabbalistic side that he had to have killed him. One of the reasons you could see it is we have the three blessings of the Amidah, for example. The first blessing is the blessing of Avot, which is Magen Avraham. That's Avraham. The third blessing is Atakadosh, which relates to who's the, who's the father who's related to Kedushah. This is Yaakov. The middle blessing is Mechayeh Metim. Resurrection of the dead. This relates to Yitzchak Avinu. If you read in the Perashah right after, it says, it says that Hashem berach Avraham bakol. Avraham blessed Hashem. I mean, Hashem blessed Avraham bakol with everything. We see it says bakol. He had a daughter. His daughter was named bakol. Bakal. That was her name. Daddy used to say that was a great grandmother. So he says bakal. Bakol was her name. But they say, no, Bakol is gematria ben. Bet is two, chaf is 20, lamed is 30, that's 52. 52 is ben, and we take 52 as ben, the same as ben. It says, now that God blessed Abraham with everything, with a son. What? How old is, how old is his son now? His son is... 37, 38, 39, 40. Now he's going to look for him for a wife. How old is his son? His son is old enough. So how do you say that he blessed him with a son? So one of the ideas is to say that he blessed him with a son now because his son returned to him after he was dead. You could also prove it from the ages, from the age of Abraham dying. There's, there's, I'm going to tell you, if you listen to this, it's 30. There's 30. Right, he wasn't there to bury his mother. Where was he when his mother was getting buried? There's a, literally a list of 30 questions. And every question you could answer, oh, he went to learn What's Torah. The What's the gap? How many years was he dead and alive? So the problem is there's, a, there's, a, there's Abraham, there's a, there's a gap of three years. And it seems he went into heaven for three years. His body was rebuilt. Remember, six million dollar man, you can make me better, stronger, faster. Anyway, he goes up and he comes back as a new person. One of the other reasons is because the rabbis tell us that he was... He, he, he couldn't get married until after the Akedah. What was the reason he couldn't get married until after the Akedah? Because he had a feminine soul. What? He had a feminine soul. And only when he went into Shamayim, and his, there were three people who met in heaven at the moment of the Akedah. Three souls. Who were the three souls? His mother, who dies at the moment. And why does she die? If you read Rashi, it says she died because she didn't think Abraham did it. 
It's not that she died because he thought she did it. She died because she thought her husband couldn't go through it. She thought he had to do it. She dies, she goes to heaven. At the same time, his father cuts, he goes to heaven. At the same time, there's a soul of a girl whose name is Rivka. It's in heaven. All three souls now, in some way, combine, and two of them come back to earth. His soul comes back, and he's now able to get married. Her soul comes down at that time. That's why we have the Midrash that she was three years old. She's the tikkun of Sarah. She's the next level of Sarah. So, so all of that relates to a level of sod. When he, when he so up, now, is, is sod a level... You really can learn, now I understand why they learn all day long and all day Because it is so much, every single word is something to learn. So if I go back, let's just start, let's go back to the beginning of it, please. Ah. So it's, it's very simple. I'll, I'll give you an answer. At the end of Parshat Noah, before we have Lech Lecha, at the end of Parshat Noah, we hear about Abraham. There's a few verses that tell us about Abraham. And Abraham's father's name was? His father's name was? Terach. And it says that Terach died at a certain age. And then we have Lech Lecha. So you think, if you read the Torah, that Terach died. Now Abraham has no father anymore. Now Hashem says Lech Lecha. You only realize later on when you add up the years that Terach is this old man still living in Haran. How could Abraham leave his old man father behind? But the Torah makes you think his father died and then he left. Because eventually you'll learn to the next level and you'll be able to understand. The Torah doesn't give you something flat faced right in front of you. For example, you have the story of, you have the, story of the, the, the fruit in the garden. The fruit in the garden. What's the whole idea behind the story of the fruit in the garden? That man is tempted to eat the fruit in the garden. We see that the Nachash comes to Chava and tells Chava, eat the apple, whatever, eat the whatever. The, whatever. So how could it be all things? Because it was a fruit that combined all of those things. Anyway, so he says, eat the fruit. And then she comes to give it to her husband. My question is, if you knew there's a Nachash in the garden, where was Adam? Where was Adam? Where was Adam? Adam was sleeping. Why was Adam sleeping? What's the real, the real problem that starts the whole show, the whole, whole thing running? The rabbis tell us that if Adam and Chava had waited until Shabbat started, they could have eaten from the tree and the power of Shabbat would have neutralized the the fruit, the, the good and evil of the fruit to a point that they would have been able to deal with it on a very high level. But what happened? They jumped the gun. What does that mean they jumped the gun? The way the Mekubalim explain it is the whole idea of not eating the fruit is an aspect of self-control. The whole Torah is to teach you one thing, self-control. But what's the story behind the story of the apple? What's the story? So it says that Hashem creates Adam. And Adam looks and sees all other creatures have a mate. He doesn't have a mate. So Hashem puts Adam to sleep and he creates a beautiful wife. How beautiful was his wife? We know later on that Sarah has this tikkun of Chava. 
and she's supposed to be the most beautiful woman ever on the face of the earth. But who would have been the most beautiful woman ever on the face of the earth? Chava, Eve. Who was the most beautiful man on the face of the earth? Adam. Because Jacob has the face of Adam. Joseph has the face of Jacob. And on God's chariot, there's a face engraved, which is the same face that Adam had, that Jacob had, and that Joseph had. Now, Chava is the most beautiful woman on earth. Not only that, it says when Hashem created her, He put jewels in her hair and adorned her for a wedding. When was the wedding supposed to take place? When is it a mitzvah for a husband to be with his wife? So they should have waited till Friday night and Hashem would have made the wedding and Hashem would have been Mesader Kedushin and that's when they should have got together. But what does the Zohar tell us happened? And it's not only the Zohar, because there's Midrashim also. So when you say the Zohar is something you didn't learn, if, if you tell me you can't learn the Zohar, okay, so I could learn the Midrash. Which one? Is... So you learn the Midrash. The Midrash tells us that where did it all start? Where did it all go wrong? Adam and Chava were created, and they should have waited to be together until Shabbat. Six hours. Six hours they should have waited. But the problem was... No, they should have waited. So there's a few things interesting about it. How do you know? I mean, they told them not to eat. Like, how does everyone know all these analogies? So, so here's here's the answer. Hashem taught the Torah to Moshe, and in teaching the Torah to Moshe, he taught all these sodot of the Torah, which Moshe turned over to this, and that's how we get it. None of it was made up later on. Everything has to be Torah Moshe Misinai because everything connects. There's only one answer. So let's go to that to try to understand why there's a rated G version of creation and a rated R version of creation. So what does the rated R version say? That Adam's heart went pitter-patter. He was in love with his wife and he slept with her in the daylight. He should have waited till Friday night. He didn't have self-control for six hours. The same lack of self-control that Adam had for six so hours. you say that Hashem created Adam Arishon with uh, fault, or he created any ah, choice. So now, now we'll, we'll go to that right after I tell you the story, then we're going to go there, and that'll give you the whole purpose behind Kabbalah. So that's good, a perfect question to take you into that. So now what happens is he sleeps with his wife before he's supposed to, and after he slept with her, he went to take a nap. The snake saw, but the snake wasn't a snake. We see the Nachash, the Nachash is this servant who was supposed to serve man. The Nachash, if you want to learn also, you see the Nachash later comes back as Eliezer, the servant of Abraham. And then the whole again, everything connects. There's nothing that doesn't connect. And what happens is the Nachash sees and he says, I want that. I want Chava. How do I get Chava? To get rid of her husband. How do I get rid of her husband? Give her the fruit. She'll give it to her husband. He'll eat it. He'll die. And all done. What's that? What's the whole story? What does that mean? So really, if you look at it that way, the big sin of Adam Harishon is what? That he did not have self-control. And the tikkun that we all have to have for Adam Harishon and Chava is to have self-control in our life. Every aspect of the Torah is there to teach us one thing, self-control. Think of eating. I wake up in the morning and I can't just pick up a food to eat. 
Say it's Shabbat. I have to make Kiddush before I eat. I have to check if it's fruit, was it given Maaser on the fruit? I have to check, was it grown when it wasn't supposed to be grown? I have to check, is there bugs in the food? I have to check, could I eat meat if I eat milk? Could I eat milk if I eat meat? Is it a fast day? Is it not a fast day? Before I eat anything that brings me any physical pleasure, I have to go through a checklist. What's the purpose of the checklist? To teach me self-control. Self-control is the whole tikkun of Adam. Now let's go back to the, to, the, to, the, to the beginning. What's the purpose of creation? Anybody? Purpose of creation. Why did Hashem create the world? Huh? Think. So, okay, one. Anyone else? To, to give us pleasure. Ah. So Hashem created the world in order to give us. Hashem, if we're going to imagine what is this being of Hashem, which we can't imagine, wanted to create a world to be able to give. Everything is to give. Give, 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 give. So Hashem creates, in essence, a world in order to give. Now, what happens if I come to you and I bring you every single day, I bring you a cake every single day, and you want to thank me, but I won't take thank you. And you want to do something for me, but I won't take doing for me. And I bring you this cake every single day, and I bring you whatever food you need every single day, but you can't thank me and you can't do anything for me. What happens after a little while? You want to what? You Almost. You no. can't, but you can't. You want to throw it up. You can't even eat it. I don't want it. So in Kabbalah, this is called bread of shame. If I give you bread every single day, but you can't thank me or do anything to pay back for the bread, at some point you can't eat it. So now Hashem has to come up with a system to make us believe we're doing something to earn the bread. That's our life. We go through a process of earning reward. What's the whole idea of this world? We have mitzvot to earn reward. So what happens now? We have to have this ability to earn. Man has a purpose. What's man's purpose? Man's purpose is to earn reward, to be tested and to overcome the test. Now, when you, we all learn, It's in the beginning, Elohim created the heaven and the earth. So you all, when you go into all your classes, what does it mean, Elohim? Elohim means the world was created midat hadin. What does that mean? And if anybody has a question, just say stop. Okay, because I don't know what level everybody's at. Just say stop and we'll explain. The world was originally created bemidat hadin. What does that mean, bemidat hadin? It means with the aspect of judgment. What does that mean? That means if on Shabbat I came and I turned on the light, then a lightning bolt is going to come from heaven and is going to strike me down, finished. There's either you do it or you don't do it. It's, that's it. There's only two, two answers, yes or no. There's nothing in between. Seems Hashem realized, whatever that means, that man cannot live by midat hadin. So what does Hashem introduce into the world in the very beginning? Midat harachamim. Ah, but there's the problem. Midat harachamim. Midat harachamim. So if you have midat hadin, and you, that means what do you have? Complete freedom of choice. I choose to do it or I choose not to do it. So because man is weak and fails, we have to introduce this aspect called midat harachamim, the aspect of mercy. I introduced the aspect of mercy. So let me ask you a question. But is that freedom of choice just to like, make it a little more complicated? So, so what happens? <laughs> so here's what happens. So here's what happens. Are you happier living in a world of midat harachamim or midat hadin? You need both, obviously. 
Ah, so why do you need both? Just a balance. Okay, so we have a world that's created midat hadin, but we're living in a world that's midat rachamim. Which is better? Seems. So Rachamim is. Rachamim could be like you get away with everything, or Rachamim could be like happy medium. You know what I'm saying? That's so, really what it is to me. So if we're going to say Rachamim is a happy medium, or we could say that it's merciful, that, listen, where does Rachamim come from? Hashem tells Adam, Hashem tells Adam, on the day you eat from the tree, that's the day that he's going to die. And then when he eats from the tree, what does Hashem do? He judges him bemidat rachamim. And what is the day? If a day to Hashem is a thousand years, right? Or a thousand days or a thousand years. So he gives Adam on the day, my day, which time is relative, right? A thousand years, that's the day you're going to die. That's judging Adam bemidat rachamim. He gets a punishment, but the punishment is basically pushed. Rachamim is mercy, much easier. So let me ask you, so the question goes back. Okay, so Linda, I think, yeah, because here's the question. Now what happens is, are you better to live in a world of Deen or a world of Rachamim? So, but we can live in a world, we can live in a world of Deen because otherwise we're going to be punished too quickly. So you're right. The perfect is if there could be a balance between Deen and Rachamim. Here, so the example that the rabbis give, I'm going to give you an example, but based on my own. So I feel bad. I always tell the story in Ariana. I apologize. So my daughter Ariana is the best, <laughs> most beautiful chen. Everyone loves her. Whatever she does, Hashem makes successful. Whatever she does. But everyone loves her. She's like chen. She was a Nickelodeon kid. And when, you, when your kids watch TV, it's she was, she was the commercial. So Ariana, Ariana basically, she, she didn't know how to drive. She didn't know how to drive. And I could tell you, the Lexus was literally in half. Okay. So she didn't know how to drive. But she wanted to take a road test. So I took her in, in, so we live in the South Shore of Long Island. The place to take the road test, they tell you, is in Queens by the Rebbe's Kever. Thank you. By the Rebbe's, Rebbe Lebovavich's Kever. So that's where you drop them off. That's where they go with the, the road test person. And you go wait for a few minutes. So, I took her, I told my wife, I feel so bad, I know she's going to fail, she's going to be very upset, but she doesn't know how to drive. She can't do a U-turn, she can't do a K-turn, she can't pull, she can't do anything. <laughs> I pull up to the front of the kever, I get out of the car, and the guy's going to come into the car with her. I go into the, into the kever, to the, to the shul that they have over there. I think it was 11 o'clock in the morning, but Hasidim, they still didn't pray. They needed someone to read the Torah. It was good. I got to read the Torah. It was Rosh Chodesh. And I come out, and she's back, and she's smiling, and she passed. And I say, what? What do you mean you passed? I said, did you, did you make a U-turn? She goes, no, he didn't make me. Did you park? No. Do a cater? No. What'd you do? We drove around the corner and we talked to each other for a while. And then he liked me so much. He said, okay, you pass here. Who was that, that, who was that guy who gave her the road test? He was the judge of Rachamim. He was the judge of Rachamim. Now, do you want to be on the road with someone who passed the road test by the judge of Rachamim? You want the, ju- the test to be a test of deen. My, my son Moses is finishing medical school. He's doing his things, where he's going to go next year. 
You have a medical school that's a medical school of Dean, where they make you work all crazy hours, seven days a week, 12 hours a day, nonstop, test, 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 make sure you know everything. That's the medical school of Dean. There's also another medical school called the Medical School of Rapami. Pay the tuition, come to class, don't come to class. In the end, we're going to give you the certificate. Which medical school do you want your doctor to graduate from? So there's no growth in this world unless you have this Midat HaDin. And in order to have Midat HaDin, what do you need? You need to be tested. Because every time you're tested in this world, you're able to grow. When the Avot are tested, they're not being tested so that God should find out if they're going to pass the test or not. God knows if they're going to pass the test or not. Why are they being tested? So they can see that I've come to the next level. When we send our kids to school, they have to graduate grade, grade, grade in order to go to the next level. But what does it take to graduate level, level? You have to be tested. You have to be tested. Who tests us in this world? Who tests us? No. Who, te- who do you think tests us? Who's our big tester? Who do you think? Hashem tests us, but whose job is it to test us? He he designed this job to an angel. So some people look at the Yetzer Hara as Satan, you know, Satan opposed to Hashem. But who is the Yetzer Hara? He is Malach Hashem. Not just Malach Elohim, Malach Yudke Vavke, Malach of God of mercy. Why? Because he's testing us in order for us to have an opportunity to grow. To grow. Right. That's our test. So that's, that's why we thank Hashem for everything, like they said, thank Hashem for what the good and the bad. Which we don't understand. Yeah, now we don't understand. <laughs> we don't understand the bad in life. We can never understand the bad. You know, so one of the, the questions is asking Kabbalah, question is, how do you understand the bad? So there is no answer, because Moshe Rabbeinu, he has one question to God. His one question to God was, show me your face. Remember, after the Chet HaEgel, Hashem has mercy. So Moshe says, you know, Hashem's being merciful, let me push this. So he says to Hashem, show me your face. What does Hashem answer? A person can't see my face and live, you can only see my back. What is really the question there? He's asking God a very simple question. Why do bad things happen to good people? And what is Hashem's answer? You can't see my face. You could only see my back. Meaning, during our life in this world, we don't understand. We don't understand. Why do bad things happen to good people? We perceive bad things happening to good people. That's why we have a, a beracha. We say, Baruch Dayan HaEmet. We say, blessed is the truthful judge versus the one who does good, who is good. But how can we, how can we, how can we say that in the end we're going to be able to say for those things? How do we say it? It's impossible. It's impossible. Say, Moshe, I'm sorry, Moshe. I can't answer you that in this world for you to understand. But after the whole story is done, after the story is done, then we'll begin to understand. Then we'll be able to understand. It's like you're seeing a picture. Who's the guy, Cezanne with the dots? Who paints with the dots? So if you stand close, you only see the dots. You don't see anything. 
You can't see anything. Imagine you're one dot in the picture, you're right up close and only being able to see a few dots, you only see dots. But step back, step back, step back. You see the whole picture. In the story I told you about Rabbi Akiva, what happens in the story of Rabbi Akiva is Moshe Rabbeinu asks Hashem, wow, this guy's unbelievable. What is his reward? He's the father of all Jewish knowledge. What is his reward? How is Rabbi Akiva the father of all Jewish knowledge? So we all know the story that Rabbi Akiva had 24,000 students and the 24,000 students died. And what did Rabbi Akiva do? He probably was 100 years old at the time. He could have said, I'm retiring to Miami Beach. Leave me be. Instead, it says he went and he found five new students. The five new students who he found are the fathers of the Torah that we have. We have Rabbi Yehuda, puts the Mishnah together. Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai, who's the Kabbalah. We have Rabbi Yossi. We have, we have Rabbi, Shimon, Rabbi Meir Balhan. We have the rabbis who make up the future of Judaism all from Rabbi Akiva. So Moshe Rabbeinu asks Hashem, Hashem, what's the reward of Rabbi Akiva? What's his end? And Hashem takes Moshe Rabbeinu and he sees the death of Rabbi Akiva. Rabbi Akiva is taken by the Romans for refusing to listen to them and he continues to teach Torah. And they take him and they publicly, they publicly kill him. But in a way we can't even imagine. They take iron combs and they literally peel off his flesh while he's alive. I just read that that was part of the Ten Tribes the, that was the um, right. So they said we have us, we have the ten people who were killed by the Romans, the ten martyrs. That's the tikkun for the ten brothers of selling Joseph. That's what we see. So so see what does that mean? Let's just see. So Moshe Rabbeinu, let, let me say. So Moshe Rabbeinu says to Hashem, "Is this your Torah, and this is its reward?" Explain. And how, what does Moshe? What does Hashem say? Don't ask. What do you mean, don't ask? It says, when the angels saw this happening, the angels said to Hashem, how could this be the world you live in? And Hashem says, if you say one more word, I'm going to take the world back to Tohu I'm going to take it back to before creation. What does that mean? This Hashem says, if you don't want to play, I'm, it's my ball. If, I'm not, if, if you don't want to play my rules, I'm going to take my ball and go home. It doesn't mean that. It means the only way for you to understand it is two ways. Either you wait till the end and then you see the entire picture or you go to the beginning and you see the blueprint. If you go to the beginning and see the blueprint, then you can understand why all of these things are happening. The only way to sometimes understand why bad things happen to good people is through Kabbalah. Because with Kabbalah, we have a concept, one of the books, so we have the Kabbalah, we say the Zohar is basically the book of Kabbalah. From the Zohar, we have then the, the book of Rav, we have the, 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 the writings of, of the Arizal. The Arizal is Rabbeinu, so the Arizal is, uh, is, is, uh, is uh, Rabbi Yitzchak Luria, who lived in Safat in the 15th century. He writes his books, or his books are written by a student of his. His student's name is Rabbi Chaim Vital. He actually was Syrian. And he, he's his student of the Ari, and he writes down all of his writings. So we have the Kitvei Ari. One of the books that he writes is called Sha'ar Hagilguli, The Gate of Reincarnation. And in that book, he goes through every person through history, 
and says, who's a reincarnation of who? And through understanding the laws of reincarnation, he begins to explain why what we perceive as bad is happening to good people. And then he's, this is part of, this all the books of the Arizal, is, is what we could say is part of the Kabbalah. People would say only a Kabbalist is going to read the Ari. But right. I'm telling you, if you look at the Zohar, I can on many, many times show you the same thing that's written in the Zohar is written in one of the Midrashim. Why do you say you can't learn? I don't but know. Now, so so the, the Kabbalah that they're talking about, there's, two, there's, a, there's a Kabbalah which we have to understand is called practical Kabbalah. Practical Kabbalah is, maybe we could call it white magic. So there were definitely people throughout our history who were able to see things and do things that we can't do. We had in our community, our, our great uncle, his name was Chacham Moshe Gindi. Yeah, I if you know the story of Chacham Moshe Gindi, it's a very interesting story of Chacham Moshe Gindi. He came to America, I think in 1908 or 1907, and he made a lot of money. He went back to Aleppo, and in Aleppo, you know who, he, who, who took care of him was, was, was Aharon Gindi. So you should know. So Aharon Gindi, took care, Aharon Gindi took care of all of them. When Isaac and David came also, he's the one who took care of them. So they always looked at, they always looked at, at Aharon Gindi as their uncle who took care of them. All the Gindis are related. So this Moshe Gindi went back to Aleppo with a lot of money. And he got back and he wanted to marry the prettiest girl in Aleppo, who turned out to be the daughter of the chief rabbi. Which chief I think it was, uh, was Dweck. Was, uh, yeah. And the rabbi said, absolutely not. I don't care how much money you have. I will not let my daughter marry Am Haaretz, meaning uh, a simpleton. He said, I will commit myself to learning for the next five years, if you agree. Turns out that the chief rabbi passed away. His son took over as the chief rabbi and the father came to the son in a dream and he said, let Moshe marry your sister because he will be. He committed himself to learn and learn and learn and he came to America and he was the main Kabbalist in America. They said other family members had the same dream the same night. To know that that he should let him marry. And now what happens, he comes to America and he's a Mekubal. And we have stories of him with people who were possessed. You know, yeah. you saw the exorcist. Yeah. And he, my mother told us that she actually saw. Yeah. Did she really? She saw, my mother told us she saw yeah. that the, 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 the body was possessed by a spirit. Mm-hmm. And the spirit left through the toe and the toe started bleeding. And, but we don't have that today. Did that, your mother saw it. That's what she told us, she right? Told There's Elvis. <laughs> but I have a question on all this stuff. Is why so that's practical. But that's practical. That, that we're going to call practical Kabbalah. That none of us should learn. And Rabbi Yaakov Hillel says today, there's nobody who knows practical halach, practical Kabbalah. Except maybe Victor, we don't want to talk about that. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm joking, Vic. Sorry, Vic, sorry. <laughs> Who's your great grandfather? Ah, yeah. So his great grandfather's brother. So that's it. So our great, our grandfather was David. So they, they, 
They also came here and they also went back with their money. They thought that would keep them from the army and they got drafted into the Turkish army. And only because they got drafted to the Turkish army did my grandmother and my grandfather meet because uh, he was stationed in, uh, in, uh, north of, in, uh, in north of north of Beirut. North of Beirut. So a lot of stories connect. So things, things all connect one to the other, one to the other, one to the other. Everything connects. But the law about not learning Kabbalah, we're going to say is the law not to learn Kabbalah because we don't learn practical Kabbalah. None of us know, none of us know, none of us know practical Kabbalah. I'll say Rabbi Yaakov says nobody today does practical Kabbalah. Maybe there's some people who can do, but if they do, they don't talk about doing practical Kabbalah. What the Kabbalah we're talking about is learning the Torah to another level to try to understand the Torah in deeper, in more depth. And that's, that's the way it is to peel off. Look, look at this holiday. We're celebrating now Hanukkah. Hanukkah, do we think Hanukkah, when did Hanukkah start? Hanukkah started in the 36th century from, from, from creation, which means about 200 before the common era. What's the story of Hanukkah? The story very simply is, you, know, you said this, one of the Greeks, the Greeks came, Alexander the Great came, he conquered Eretz Yisrael. The Jews were uh, enamor- enamored with Hellenistic ways and started becoming very Hellenistic. The Greeks pushed more and more into their society. The Jews became more and more like the Greeks and Judaism was changing. What happens is there's a group that says, no, we have to take it back. So that group is the Maccabees, and we don't talk so much about the war because the war was more of a civil war than a war between the Jews and the Greeks. It was the Jews who were Hellenized versus the Jews who were traditionalist. That's really Hanukkah. But this story of Hanukkah that takes place in the 36th century from creation, when was Hanukkah built into the world? First day. Probably the first day of creation. But it had to stay under there until Hashem decided it had to be revealed. What does that mean that something is created and then has to be revealed later? This is the idea of peeling layers, peeling layers until we get to what the source is. Now, if you look in the Torah, just to give you a little, a little Kabbalah from the beginning of the Torah, we have Bereshit so the first thing that we see that Hashem creates is what? Is light. Vayomer Elohim, God says, Yehi, let there be, Yud, Hey, Yud, or, let there be light. The gematria of the word Yehi is Yud, Hey, Yud, is 25. 25. The 25th word of the Torah is or. So Yehi, Yud, Hey, Yud, 25, is or. Any time you see a gematria of 25, it relates to light. What light? When was the sun created? When was the sun created? Which day? The fourth day. Is The sun is created the fourth day. So until the sun is created, what's the source of light in the world? No, the moon and sun are created together. So it says, Yehi or... There's light. Hashem created light the first day. What light did Hashem create the first day? So Hashem created a light that we call Or Haganuz. This is a secret hidden light that's an all-powerful light, that's an all-healing light 
That's a light directly from Hashem in heaven. Now this Or HaGanuz, the Gemara says, where is the Or HaGanuz? So if this light we say is 25, now think of this, 25 also is the letters of Shema Yisrael, Hashem Elokeinu Hashem Echad. So what happens is when, when Jacob's children come to him and he wonders, is there something wrong? I can't tell you about the future. What do his children tell him? Shema Yisrael, Hashem Elokeinu Hashem Echad. What are they telling him? 25 letters were connected to the light. What does he answer? Baruch Shem Kevod Mahuto Leolam Vaed. How many letters in that verse? 25. Close, 24. <laughs> Why 24? Because we can never get to 50. 50 is called the level of Binah. It's the level of Binah which is 50. We talk about 50. We have a commandment in the Torah so to count. So let's go through the Torah. T- gives us a commandment. The commandment in the Torah is to count Chamishim Yom Tisperu, count 50 days between Pesach and Shavuot, you count the Omer. How many days do we count the Omer? 49. What do you mean? The Torah says count 50 days. It's not count 50 minus 1. It says Chamishim Yom Tisperu. But we only count 49. Why do we only count 49? Because we say there's Nun Share Binah. There's 50 levels of Binah. Even Moshe Rabbeinu got to the level of 50 minus 1. Because we can't get to 50 in this world because that's the total light of the 25 and 25 combined. Now, where is the light hidden? The Gemara says it's hidden in the 36 hours of Shabbat. So what is that? What do you mean? So what does that mean? (laughs) So the 36 hours of Shabbat are the 24 hours of Shabbat, the six hours you could add before, and the six hours you could add after. So That's it, the 36 hours. We get more time in... What do you mean? Before Shabbat? Shabbat before Shabbat, Shabbat, adding to the Shabbat, and after the Shabbat, adding to the Shabbat. That's the, that's the light. That's when the light is accessible. Now, where is that light hidden? When you light the candles of Shabbat, that or haganuz. That light that heals, that light that has an incredible power is in those two candles. Where else is it? We have something that we talk about all the time, the Lamed Vavnik Sadikim. What's the Lamed Vavnik Sadikim? That for the world to continue, there always has to be 36 righteous people in this world. We call them a Lamed Vavnik. So we see a guy and he's really a Lamed Vavnik. 36. So the light is within those people. Where else is the light? The in the Hanukkah candles. Because how many candles do we light through the whole Hanukkah if we separate the Shamash? 8, 7, 6. It equals 36. So the Or Haganuz, why do they tell you that during the time of lighting of the candles, there's a halacha, women shouldn't work? Why shouldn't women work during the time of lighting the candles? And men could work. Why? Because if you look at those candles... You could see within those candles, this Or Haganuz, this hidden light that heals. And the rabbis say, what happens when we light our Hanukkiah? Hashem is lighting Hanukkiah in heaven, which is the Or Haganuz to come down. So during the eight days of Hanukkah, we have access to this light 
that can heal and change things that we didn't know could be. Now, how do we know that this light was always meant to be there and hidden? We see that we read in the Torah this week, we read in the Torah the donations of each of the princes. And it says, after each of the princes gave a donation, 12 princes, 12 donations, what happens? Aaron comes to Moshe and he's very depressed. And he says to Moshe, Moshe, I don't understand. Every tribe gives a donation but me? Does God reject me? Because I'm leading the Levi'im, I'm the Kohen, does he reject me? And Moshe says to him, no. When you're going to light the candles. What does Rashi talk about there? He says the candles you're going to light, and the Ramban talks about, he says the candles you're going to light are not the candles of the Bet HaMikdash. Because after there's going to be no more sacrifices, you're going to still light. He says, what do you mean you're going to still light? If we don't have a menorah in the Bet HaMikdash, what's going to light? And he says, no, your children, the Chashmonaim, are the descendants of who? Aaron. They're going to continue to light. Because they're going to continue to light Aaron, your light is going to last forever. Which means, from day one of the giving of the Torah, we knew that what holiday is going to eventually come out? And what century does it come out in? The 36th century. Because that's the Or Haganus that we could use. How many tractates are in the Gemara? 36 tractates in the Gemara. You have to look at numbers, and numbers have meaning. When did we leave Egypt and get the Torah? 2448, which is the 25th century. That's the original light. But for us then to transform the light into a light we could use, it needs to be in the 36th century, which is the light of Hanukkah. That's the 36th of Hanukkah. So what is this whole idea of Kabbalah? What is the whole idea of, uh, of, uh, of, uh, of what we're learning? There's so many layers to the Torah. If we open up any single perashah, we're going to see, once we peel away, peel away, peel away, you're going to see things you never thought about before. You're going to see questions that you never asked simply because we learned when we were six years old or seven years old or eight years old, and the story we learned when we were six or seven never changes. But why do we learn the same parashah year after year after year? Because what are we supposed to do? We have to peel, peel, peel until we get to what? The center, the sword, the secret within the Torah. Because that's the Torah we have to learn. That's the Torah we have to give over. You don't have a commandment to learn, but you have a commandment to give over to your children. What does that mean? It means you have to learn in order to give over. You have to be able to understand things on levels that are not so simple. When you start to simplify Judaism... It becomes a religion that nobody wants. Why do you think the Hasidim grew, grew? Because there were a certain group of scholars who learned Torah. And the masses didn't learn anything. They learned some stories. So the Hasidim came and told them, there's holiness even in the cow. There's holiness even in your horse. There's holiness in your wagon. Because they had to raise up the Torah from a level that only someone with great knowledge can touch to a Torah that's accessible to everyone, but who speak, which speaks to everyone. Just to end with this, just to end with this. We all sometimes, we pray for miracles, and we want Hashem to step in and do things. But Hashem set up a crazy rule in this world. Nothing can happen in heaven without you hitting the button below. What does that mean? That means you can't just have a miracle that heaven's going to do unless you start the process. You have to start the process, you have to take the first step. When Yaakov, when Yaakov Avinu, when he leaves his home and he's going to his uncle, to Lavan's house, 
he leaves, and then all of a sudden the Torah tells us that Hashem brought him back. And then he has the dream with the ladder going up and down. And then Hashem shortens the distance so he can go back and forth. The question is very simple. Hashem, just remind him when he's walking by, stop here and pray. Why do you wait until he gets all the way there and then you have to make a miracle to bring him back? And then he has a dream. Just say, hey, Jacob, stop. Just make a little miracle. Just, you know, make a little thunder or something. It'll stop. Why does it have to go? And then he comes back. Because Jacob had to go and then he had to realize on his own. And he had to make a decision. You know, I need to do something. Then he had to turn around and he had to take the first step. Once he made the commitment to take the first step, he pressed the button. Then God could make a miracle. God doesn't make miracles without us. Is that to say God can't make miracles without us? No, but it's God designed the system that we participate in creation and we participate in the redemption and we participate in everything. Each of us has a purpose. Every single day of your life, there's a purpose. Every single day of your life, there's a test. There's a test happening to you, whether you realize or not, whether it's, do I get angry at someone because they said something to me? Do I do this? Do I participate in this? Every single day is a test to see if you're going to go to the next step. And that, part, that, that participation contributes to the overall, overall picture. We all, you know, you hear people say, we want Mashiach now, we want Mashiach. There's no we want Mashiach now. We have to bring Mashiach. How do we bring Mashiach? We are. We bring by our actions, by overcoming the tests that we have every single day, by growing, by being willing to say, I'm going to do this. You know, we could think a lot, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do this. They have a you know, question, there's, a, there's three birds on a tree. One of them thinks it's going to fly off. How many birds are left on the tree? Three, because it only thought it was going to fly off, right? You could think about a lot of things in your life, but what do you have to do? You have to take the first step to do it. It takes a lot of effort to do it, that first step. The Gemara talks about that first step to being almost impossible for us to do because it means we're going to go. But once we go, Hashem takes our hand and goes forward. Every one of us has a test every single day. And that's our job in this world. We're not meaningless. We're not puppets. We're not living in a world where things are happening to us. We make things happen. We're responsible to make things happen. You know, you have a war in Israel. And I, and I said it from day one. You have a war in Israel. And I look at my son-in-law sitting there now. He's no connection now because he's in probably in the middle of whatever. And last night I have a video of him sitting in the, the muck of Gaza, lighting his, uh, his menorah. And you say, wow, what about us? So the Torah tells us something very interesting. What do you mean, what about, what about us? What are we supposed to be doing when he's there? The Torah tells us that when B'nai Israel go fight against Midian... Hashem says to Moshe, Elef lemater, Elef lemater. How do we translate that? A thousand from a tribe, a thousand from a tribe. The rabbis there say, it doesn't mean a thousand from each tribe. It means Elef lemater, a thousand soldiers, and then a thousand to carry their armor, and the rabbis say, and a thousand to pray for them. Who am I? If he's going in and fighting... What do I have to do? I have to be the elef lemater, the elef, the other thousand. I have to be the support. You know, when they're going into Gaza, you have to think the only way to survive is if there's a malach in front of you and there's a malach behind you. And we say, Ki Hashem says, I command my angels to watch you wherever you go. What do you have to do? 
You have to do the deeds that create angels. And those angels, you have to say, I'm going to make responsible to take care of my soldier. Every one of us has a soldier that's connected to our soul. Every one of us has someone going in. You have to think every single day, if I do good, I'm helping. If I don't do good, I'm not helping. I need to take the step and press the button to change the world and make a difference. All of us have that. So I think that's our introduction to Kabbalah. Exactly 59 minutes and 60 minutes done.